Now imagine this. Someone you love, someone you genuinely care for has gone missing. In fact, they've been kidnapped. What would your initial reaction be? For most of us, it'd be to call the police or to try to do everything we can to get them back. And I mean most people, probably all people, would invest countless resources in order to be reunited with their loved ones, and that's what's considered normal. However, that was not the case for Casey Anthony, because when Casey's three-year-old daughter went missing, she kept it a secret from everyone. Her parents, her boyfriend, and even the police, and not just for one or two days, but instead for 31 days. And when the police found out, the person that they would end up handcuffing at the end of their investigation would be Casey Anthony herself. Yeah, in order to give a little background information on Casey, she was a 22-year-old single mom living in Orlando, Florida, and she lived in the same house as her parents with her daughter, Kaylee. Her parents were Sydney and George Anthony, and they both cared deeply about Kaylee. In fact, they often acted as the parent figures for Kaylee. That's how much they cared for her. But then on June, July 15, 2008, Cindy Anthony made two 911 calls. In the first call, she explains how she hasn't been able to see her granddaughter in over a month. And I know that this is a little confusing, especially since I mentioned earlier that they all lived together, but Casey had apparently had an argument with her parents and left home with Kaylee. And they were couch surfing, but Casey made sure to keep in touch with her parents. However, she still made constant excuses for why Sydney and George couldn't meet Kaylee. She'd keep in regular contact with them herself, but she never, ever let them see Kaylee. So I guess that's what prompted the call. The second call, which was made at 10.36 p.m., talks about how Kaylee had been kidnapped, apparently, and that Casey had just admitted that Kaylee's babysitter had kidnapped her. She said that despite Casey having looked for Kaylee, she hasn't been able to find her, and that there was also something odd about Casey's car. She said specifically that it smelled like a dead body in there, and that's very important. So now it's established that Kaylee's been kidnapped, Casey had been trying to handle it on her own, but nobody knew. Her parents didn't know, the police obviously didn't know, so only Casey knew that Kaylee was kidnapped, but she still hasn't been able to find her. So then at 3.50 a.m. on July 16th, the police arrive at the house and they find all the family members just huddled around Casey trying to figure out what actually happened. They're trying to know where Kaylee is and they're asking her questions after questions. And then at 4.11 a.m., they have an initial interview with Casey. And this interview was recorded, by the way. But through this interview, they got Casey's version of the events that happened. She said that on June 9th, she took Kaylee to her babysitter's house, and this babysitter was a woman by the name of Zanai de Fernandez Gonzalez. However, the babysitter apparently kidnapped Kaylee. And Casey said, yes, I thought I'd be able to handle it myself. That's why I didn't call the police. But she also said that she was worried something would happen to her daughter if the police and media found out. So, of course, forensic experts listened to this recording and analyzed it. And what they found, and what I found when I listened to it, was that her voice was emotionless. She didn't have the urgency in her voice and in her diction that someone whose daughter was missing for a month would have. You'd think that if your kid, someone you're supposed to love, was gone for a month, you'd be a little panicked, but she seemed perfectly normal. And so the police asked her, like, hey, let's go to the babysitter's house. Can you take us there? And Casey was like, yes, of course. So at 4.41 a.m., Casey leads the detectives to three different addresses that she says the babysitter could be at with Kaylee. 
The first is the babysitter's actual house address, but the babysitter wasn't there. The second was an apartment that no one had lived in for over two months. And the third was a retirement home. So basically what happened was the police was like, take us to the babysitter's house. And she was like, okay, she could be here, here, or here. But the babysitter wasn't in any of those places. And the police started wondering, like, hey, you said you could take us to the babysitter. So far, none of the places you've taken us to have had any people in them besides the retirement home, which is filled with elderly people. And the forensic experts also found this so strange. I mean, if you don't know where the babysitter's house is, sure, you might not want to tell the police because it makes you look bad. But after you've got the wrong address once, you think that you might want to tell the police like, hey, I don't know where the babysitter's house is. But instead, Casey somehow manages to come up with three different specific addresses on the spot. So we already know that she's very good at lying or she's very good at improvising or coming up with things on the spot. Let's just say that. So they drop Casey back off at her parents' home at around 6.45 a.m. And at 7.30 a.m., they start following up with some of the leads that she provided them with. One of them led to Universal Studios Orlando, which is where Casey claimed she worked. So they asked the supervisor of Universal, do you employ someone named Casey Anthony? And the supervisor said that Casey had actually been fired over two years ago. They also contacted several people with the name of Zenaida, and none of them knew Casey Anthony. None of them knew of a single person named Casey Anthony. So now the police are actually wondering what is going on, because Casey has now lied countless times, which is also not typical behavior expected of someone who wants to help the police find their missing baby. So at 9.30, they pick up Casey and they visit Universal. But the thing is, they don't tell her they're going there. They just say, hey, we want you to look at some pictures of Zenaida, and we want to see if this is the person that kidnapped your kid. And she's like, sure, of course. And they didn't tell her that they were going to Universal because they wanted her raw reaction. So once they're in the car and once they're on their way, they're like, okay, we're going to Universal. We actually lied to you. And you'd think that she'd act panicked, especially because she doesn't work there. But her reaction was normal. She was like, oh, yeah, sure, of course. So they go to Universal and they all watch as Casey goes to the employee entrance and insists to the security guard that she works there. And the guard's just like, oh, no, I don't have you on the roster, but she's insisting. No, I work here. I work here. I definitely work here. And the police are watching this whole interaction, but of course, they already know. So eventually, the guard asks her, what's your supervisor's name? And she gives a random name, just one that she once again comes up with on the spot. And he's like, that person doesn't work here either. So eventually, a higher-up just came by and told the guard to let her in. I mean, if she's that insistent that she works here, then she probably does. So they all walk together to the HR building. And once they're in there, Casey's just waving to everyone as though she actually works there. She's like, hi, how are you doing? And eventually she leads the police down a dead-end hallway. And that's when she finally admits that she doesn't work there. She didn't admit it when the security guard said she didn't work there. She didn't admit it when all the people she was waving to looked confused. She admitted once she actually physically led them down a dead end and could no longer deny that she doesn't work there. And that's when the police decided that they needed to interrogate her. So they set up a whole system at Universal Building, and they start aggressively questioning her. And the whole time, she insists, I don't know where Kaylee is. She says she had nothing to do with her disappearance, and she's just digging her heels into the ground. 
After the interrogation, they decide they need to arrest her for child neglect, lying to a police officer, and obstruction of investigation. But as the police are investigating her, she isn't phased whatsoever. She doesn't have the reaction of a person who's getting arrested. So now we're starting to see a pattern. Keely Anthony is not only good at lying, but she's good at having masked reactions, I guess. She's good at going with the flow, not seeming caught off guard. After they arrest her, they get a warrant to search the Anthony residence, and they ended up finding a car that Casey drove. But this car smelled of human decomposition before you even opened it. It reeked. It oozed out. Now, forensic experts with decades of experience know what decomposition smells like. And when they searched this car, they knew that this was the smell of decomposition. Now, cadaver dogs, which are dogs that detect corpses, signaled that they also smelled a corpse or decomposition coming from within this car. Now, obviously, all this evidence is very incriminating, but what's even more intriguing is Casey's behavior after her daughter went missing. So on June 16th, Casey apparently told her parents that she and Kaylee were going to spend the night with Zenaida Gonzalez. But that same night, she's seen on security camera footage at the store with her boyfriend, and there's no Kaylee in sight. And remember, the reason I suspect that Casey's going to stay at someone else's house is with Kaylee is because, remember, she got into an argument with her parents. So I'm assuming that that is the reason she is going to stay at someone else's house. But yeah, she's seen at a store with her boyfriend later that same day with no Kaylee in sight. And in the days after Kaylee's disappearance, or the days after she was last seen by her grandparents, Casey was clubbing a lot. She got a tattoo that said beautiful life in Italian, and she went shopping a lot. So she seems to be acting very normal, very normal for a 22-year-old, not how a mother would act when her daughter goes missing. And everyone she met in that one-month period from when Kay Kaylee was last seen by her grandparents to when she was arrested, everyone she met is saying, oh yeah, Casey was acting normal. All the club goers, all the tattoo artists, everyone said she was acting normal. And during the 31 days between Casey's or Kaylee's disappearance in the 911 call, Casey's still making excuses for why her parents can't meet Kaylee. Just random excuses, and eventually it gets to a point where you can't believe the excuses anymore because they keep coming and coming and coming and coming. And so for three months, the search for Kaylee continued, even after her mom's arrest. But after four months, she was finally presumed dead, and Casey was then charged with first-degree mur murder, which she pled not guilty to. But the biggest pivotal find of this investigation happened on December 11th, 2008. A utilities worker found a human skull and immediately called 911. The skull was in a plastic bag in the woods, less than a quarter mile from the Anthony residence. That's, that's very close. And it was soon confirmed to be Kaylee's skull. The person who discovered it was named Ron Cronk, and he actually... Um, was supposed to testify for this documentary, but he demanded a payment of $1 million, if that tells you a little bit about his character. But besides that, the defense actually insinuated that he might have moved, there the moved the skull there himself. And the reason they claim that is because the skull was just 17 feet and 4 inches from the curb. And I know that seems like a large distance, but in terms of this type of crime, it's not that deep. 
and they say that there's no way that nobody saw the skull for five months because of how close it was to the curb. They're saying that people who are driving, people who are walking by that street would have seen that skull because of how close it is to the edge of the street. But the evidence completely contradicts that accusation, at least in my personal opinion. Because the bottom third of that skull was covered in debris. And sure, you could say that he put that debris there himself. But roots were growing through the skull, which indicated that it had been there for quite some time. Once investigators did a thorough search of the scene, they found countless pieces of evidence. And all of the evidence connected this crime to Casey Anthony. They found a Winnie the Pooh blanket at the scene, which matched the Winnie the Pooh theming Casey had created for Kaylee's bedding. The skull was also placed with or near not only a black plastic bag, but a laundry bag. So it was like in cover, it was, um, the skull was put into like black plastic bags and laundry bags. But this laundry bag was part of a laundry bag set that was found at the Anthony's household. It was like a nesting set, so they progressively like fit into each other, but one of them was found at the crime scene and the others were found at the household. They also found duct tape around the skull in the areas of the nose and the mouth, and they found mass matching duct tape over a gas container. So obviously, we're seeing lots of connections. These three pieces of duct tapes in total were about two inches thick. So they were two inches thick each, and there were three in total. They even had pieces of hair attached to the edges of them, and this is because the tape, like, encapsulated all of Kaylee's face, so the hair on the sides of her face was stuck onto the tape. And this tape also had a faint impression of a heart, and the investigators deduced that this was a heart sticker. And the heart sticker was found 45 feet from the skull. However, the FBI processed the sticker before they even took a picture of it, so it didn't have much of an impact during the trial as it could have. But judging by the placement over the but judging by the placement of the tape over the mouth and the nose, you can probably understand why the tape was there. And the most the most uncomfortable, I don't want to say uncomfortable, but upsetting, saddening thing about this for me was that the investigators spent 11 days recovering Kaylee's bones. And this is because after months of decomposition, the body was gone, you just had bones left, but animals had also eaten the body, and they had spread the bones out all over the place. And that just is so sad for me to hear, because, I mean, first of all, you don't want your daughter to be eaten up by animals. And the fact that her bones all over the place like meat like an actual animal is just is just so saddening now in order for the prosecution to prove that casey committed the murder they needed a motive one possible motive was that casey wanted a different life for herself than she viewed with kaylee still in the picture and this all comes down to her boyfriend tony lazaro was her boyfriend and he was trying to break up with her and he wanted to let her go kind of easy by saying Oh, I'd never marry a woman who has a daughter. Now, you would understand why this sentence could impact someone, but Tony later said to the police, or indicated to the police, that he thinks that sentence caused Kaylee's death and he feels guilty for it. So now, Casey, who's obsessed with her boyfriend, is upset because he's like, I'm not going to be with you, you have a daughter. So now she thinks her daughter is the reason she's losing the love of her life. 
And wanting to keep her, or wanting to keep him, could definitely have been a motive. In fact, the extent of her obsession with him is displayed on the phone call she makes the night of her arrest. She calls her mom on the night of her arrest, and this is because her mom had gone on the news after the publication of Kaylee's disappearance and said, I don't know if my daughter is involved in the disappearance. I don't know if she had anything to do with it. And obviously, if you were Cindy, you'd think the same way. I mean, part of you refuses to believe that someone you gave birth to, your own daughter, could do something so horrendous, but at the same time, your daughter is refusing to talk and just keeps lying and makes it seem just super suspicious. But you also get where Casey is coming from with being angry because your parents don't believe you. And so Casey starts screaming and Sydney's saying like, oh, I can't talk to you right now. Just give me Tony's phone number. Let me call him. That just proves the extent to which she's relying on him, the extent to which she depends on him. She's like, I can't deal with you right now. Just give me my boyfriend's phone number. She also calls her friend that same night and says, none of my family believes me. They just want Kaylee back. And the way she sound, says this sounds like an angry, jealous teenager in high school who's upset that she's not getting all the attention she wants. And let's talk a little bit more about the defense's case now. I feel like so far we've talked about the prosecution's case and the way the prosecution viewed the evidence, but let's talk a little bit about the defense's theory. Their theory was that Kaylee had gone outside by herself while her mom was not looking, climbed up a ladder that was left outside, and then drowned in the pool because they had a pool. George, who was Casey's dad, had found Kaylee, and when Casey saw Kaylee limp, she started crying. And apparently, George started screaming at her, saying, you're going to go to jail, your mom's never going to forgive you. And then he left with the body. Apparently. According to the defense. And I, I'm try I know I sound very biased right now towards the prosecution, but after all the research I've done, it's very hard not to be. Because I personally just don't believe this theory, and I'll give you a couple reasons why. First of all, they're claiming that George disposed of the body. They're claiming that George killed her. So I want you to understand that Casey is blaming her own father. I just want to clear that up. There's nothing wrong with it, I suppose. There's nothing wrong with it. But George is an ex-cop. So first of all, if the death was really an accident, then George wouldn't be scared to call the cops. Because he knows what happens, what's the what the procedure is like when deaths are actually accidents. So there's there's that. And if he did dispose of the body, let's say he did, do you think that an ex-cop would hide the body less than a quarter of a mile away from his house, just on top of the ground, not even buried, not even hidden, just on top of the ground? I think George would know better than that as an ex-cop. And we also had testimony from medic the medical expert for the prosecution. And apparently up to 20 kids a year die by drowning. And during each of those drownings, the parents always call 911. Even if their child's heart isn't beating, they want to believe that the child can be saved and can still live. So they call for the ambulance to try and get the paramedics to save their child. They won't lose hope unless they've actually done everything they can. And if this drowning was an accident, and if Kaylee was dead, then why didn't they call the police or give her a normal funeral? Why dump her in the forest like a criminal? Oh, that rhymed. <laughs> now let's talk a little bit about the defense explaining the smell of the garbage or smell of the decomposition from the trunk. 
The defense said that the smell of the decomposition was the smell of garbage, which had been heating up for days in the trunk. And yes, there was garbage found in the trunk. However, the defense's own expert said that had he known that the cadaver dog signaled that the trunk smelled of decomposition, he would have agreed with the dogs. And the reason he says this is because during the trial, obviously he was a defense witness. So the point of his testimony was to say there are other reasons for the smell besides decomposition. But after the trial, when he gave interviews, he said, I was only allowed to testify to the areas of my expertise. And the areas of my expertise did not involve the smell of cadaver dogs. But he has since done research on cadaver dogs that signals how reliable their smell is because the dogs are very reliable. He has found that they are almost 100% reliable when it comes to signaling things like this. So he's like, had I been able to testify to things outside my expertise and things that I now know, then I would say that that smell was 100% decomposition. Keep in mind that forensic experts with decades of experience recognize that smell from the trunk is decomposition. They know what it smells like. They've unfortunately had too many experiences with it. Now, the prosecution, obviously, this, they want, oh, no, the defense. The witness, George, George, Casey's dad, was a very central aspect of the defense's theory, obviously, because he, they're claiming that he's the one who actually killed Kaylee. So they tried to take away his credibility as a witness by claiming that he molested Casey as a child. And the interesting thing about this is this was only mentioned during opening statement. There was no testimony of it throughout the actual trial. So this leads many people to assume that it was used as a diversion technique to distract the jury from the evidence that was actually presented during the trial. Because now whenever they hear incriminating evidence, they're going to be like, wait, but isn't George the person who molested Casey? So this was a very strategic um, tactic on part of the defense. But one thing I think the prosecution fumbled on was a crucial piece of evidence. Now, there was a desktop computer in the Anthony home, and the prosecution and defense both did their own search of this computer. There were two browsers on the desktop computer, because remember, this was 2008, this was old, but the prosecution's analyst only checked one of the browsers because she was fairly new. She didn't know. But then the defense's analyst checked both browsers. And in the other browser that the prosecution's analyst didn't check, they found that someone had searched for foolproof suffocation. You heard that right. Foolproof suffocation. Remember, Kaylee, I'm getting them confused. Kaylee had duct tape over her nose and her mouth. Now, Jose Bays, who was the lead defense attorney, claimed that the search had been made at 1.50 p.m. the day Kaylee disappeared. And he claimed it was made by George, who was home at the time, and, had, and he had made it because he was having suicidal thoughts. Interesting. But a private attorney and a computer scientist were later able to decode the public records of the browser history because in Florida law, um, they're public records, so you're able to get access to it. But they found out that the search had actually been done at 2.51 p.m. because the defense had decoded the time using an incorrect decoder. And the reason they needed a decoder was because it was in like weird code, browsing code. So they needed to be able to translate that browsing code into actual human code. 
And so they used a decoder, but the defense used the wrong decoder, so they had the wrong time. But based on Casey's phone records, she was home at the time that the search was actually made, while George was most likely en route to work, because his work started at 3 and the search was made at 2.51, given the transportation time required for George to get from his house to his job, he most definitely would have been um, in transit to his job. And the fact that George arrived on time to his work signals that he was 100% driving at the time. Now, if that isn't enough, the history, the browsing history for the search of foolproof suffocation was sandwiched in between AOL on Casey's account and MySpace on Casey's account and instant messaging with Casey's friends. So basically what was going on was the person who had made the foolproof suffocation search was texting their friends on AOL, texting their friends on MySpace, searching up foolproof suffocation, and then instant messaging their friends. And this was all done on Casey's account. So you can see why this is very incriminating for Casey. But the biggest indicator that Casey made the search, not George, if that already wasn't enough, is that a large chunk of browsing history was deleted right before Casey was arrested. Like, hours before she was arrested. Because remember, she took the police on a search of the addresses, and then she came home, and she was alone for about four hours without the supervision of police. And that matches a time that she deleted the history. But the most mm, disappointing aspect of all this evidence is that none of it came through during trial because first of all the prosecution they didn't look through the second browser second of all the actual decoding of the wrong time stamp was done after the trial so yes it's it's very upsetting because this obviously could have played a huge role in the outcome of the case trial began in may of 2011 and ended around early july and Casey, did her, Casey herself did not testify, but after 11 hours of deliberation, the jury found that she was not guilty of first-degree murder, aggravated child abuse, and aggravated manslaughter. However, they found that she was guilty of four misdemeanor counts of providing false information to law enforcement. So she was sentenced to four years in prison, one year for each count, but was later released on the $500,000 bail. Now, this case is very interesting. First of all, it was really hard for me to stay unbiased, and you can probably tell that I was not unbiased through it. I definitely feel as though there was more than enough evidence to convict her, but I respect the jury's opinions, and I respect the work put in by the defense. So I am assuming that there was tons of evidence presented that the jury saw that led them to the reasonable conclusion of a not guilty verdict. But it was still shocking because almost all the evidence seemed to point towards guilt. But the verdict was not guilty. However, it is a jury's decision and we've got to respect that. But regardless of what went down, regardless of who, whether Casey did it or not, who actually did it, what the jury found, I just hope that Kaylee Anthony is in a better place today. Because to have had your life cut so short at the young age of three is just truly tragic and I hope that everyone who is affected by the tragedy of her death and disappearance are slowly starting to heal. I can't imagine the sheer amount of suffering her loved ones endured, but I hope that with time, their pain is slowly starting to patch up.